try to kill us, but my village too strong. Long live the people. Here we go again with the bullshit you want. Long live the people. We have all these mixed blood people over across the country. We cannot exclude them. There's nothing wrong with being Red River Metis. We are all Metis. There was an attempt to define Metis. And we said no. There's Métis from Red River. What's wrong with Métis from someplace else? And they were also Métis people. Uniting our people is at a very sad state. We are all Métis. Welcome to the Jig is Up. Joining me as always is the professor. Hey, Jason. How's it going this evening, Darcy? Not too bad. How about you? Good. Another sunny day up here in the north. Yeah, it's uh, pretty sunny down here in Calgary, too. Although, I'm actually technically in Lloydminster right now. Oh, almost big down by the medicine line. Yeah, that's right. Lucky me. Uh, so I wanted to start off today, uh, we're gonna, we got a lot of things to cover. we got a whole raft of stuff. But I wanted to start off with a couple of quotes from a... Uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, because that's going to be our first topic, is the removal of his name from some schools. And uh, so I wanted to start off with these, and the first one's a bit, a bit of a long one, but and then the second one's not so long. So the first one is, when the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents, who are savages. And though he may re- learn to read and write, his habits and training mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself as head of the department that the Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence, and the only way to do that would to be put them in a central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes of and thought of white men. That was in 1879. And the next quote I, I thought was interesting was, He shall die, though every dog in Quebec bark in his favor. And that was in 1885, following the execution of Louis Riel. And why I thought it would be good to start with such horrible quotes is because recently the president of the MNC made the following statement to the media when asked about removing the name Sir John A. Macdonald from buildings. He said, We can't undo history. Macdonald was a father of confederation. He did have a role to play. While it may have negatively impacted the Métis nation, I'm sure it did some good for other Canadians. There has to be a balance to it all, or to it as well. He remained neutral on the motion, adding he believes there are far more important issues to address, including the exclusion of the Métis residential schools from the residential school uh, settlement. So, I don't know, Jason, what do you think about what his comment is and those quotes and how it's, you know, he's, he's saying there's more important things to deal with, like the Métis residential school settlement or the residential school settlement. But, I mean, this is the guy who started the residential school system. Yeah, I think, like, I, I do agree. I think there's there's a big problem going on with, with Métis exclusion in that discussion. But these things are, are, they're not linked intrinsically, one going right to the other. They're two separate conversations, and to try to link them other, together in my mind, to justify or you know lend credence one way or the other is is I think a bit of a misnomer. Um, yes, there's a problem with Métis exclusion um, that needs to be addressed. That has very you know precious little to do with removing John A. Macdonald. Um, yeah, you know to say that he negatively impacted Métis people is you know uh, an understatement if I've ever heard one. To say that he benefited. Um, uh, the settler nation, yeah, of course he did, but I don't understand how we're ever going to change the perception of of history to something that's valid and not something mythical if we're not willing to address these fathers of confederacy in their time and place. Um, so it, it sounds like a very wishy-washy statement on his part for something that's actually fairly clear-cut. I, I agree, and I, I think comparing that he, what he said about how, um, you know, he, he did have a role to play, and, it, you know, there were some good things he did for other Canadians, 
and I want to compare that to what Prime Minister Trudeau said, which is non-Indigenous Canadians have an essential role to play in how we shape a better and more responsible future for everyone who shares this land. And these conversations are extremely important to have, to reflect on our past and build the right future forward together. But I can say unequivocally there are no plans for the federal government to change the name Sir John A. Macdonald off anything in our responsibility. So essentially the Trudeau is saying, yes, non-Indigenous also have a role in this conversation, which is kind of what, you know, the president of the MNC is saying is, well, he did good for the non-Indigenous. So I thought the two statements were very, very, very similar. I thought that in itself was very interesting. What did you think? Yeah, I think that's the, the challenge is we see that the MNC in, its, in and of itself is really just a paid organization. and They really like to pick and choose what what they're going to stand up for and what they're just willing to have a pass completely. Um, yeah, I find it very bothersome that in what should be a basically a slam dunk uh, discussion for any Indigenous person at all is the proper readdressment of these colonial you know, historical figures and the way they're remembered, um, you know, is, is a pretty obvious target to me. You know, we see this very easily handled uh, down south. I mean, you sure you see some backlash, but it's a, uh, at least they're having a much more honest conversation. The fact that the leader of the, the largest single major organization would be so wishy-washy um, and in fact, you know, non-committal in what is, you know, quite frankly, in a very easy conversation to have. Absolutely. And and to me, I mean, I, I got a lot to say about this. And when I, when I first read it, I mean, I, I was, <laughs> I was really choked. Um, you know, we're, I'm having a hard time not swearing during this conversation, to be honest with you, because it, it, it ma- makes me quite angry. I mean, we have an, an organization here and it, to me, this is just another example of how, absolutely out of touch with our complete Indigenous family, First Nation, Inuit, Métis, that his organization and that whole conglomerate we call the cartel has become. I mean, when you think about what these people did to Indigenous people, I mean, what message does it send to kids to walk into schools named after, and or other buildings or see landmarks named after people that enacted policies of genocide against them, their spirituality, their traditions, their ancestors, and this stuff continues today. Like, it's not like this is in the past. We're still living it today. Uh, he, you know, he speaks as though these things are of the past. Like, well, well Sir John A. was of the past. We still have the Indian Act. Uh, we have, still have missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, men, boys, and Métis are in those numbers as well, in high numbers. The constant and blatant systemic racism, hate, ignorance, and stereotypes that all Indigenous face. And then as a leader, and I used air quotes there for our listeners, he makes a statement like that. It's just, to me, it's irresponsible. Um, You know, every day somebody in this country goes, another Indigenous person goes missing, a baby's taken. Um, The government's still fighting against the the land that the First Nations have, which is like, what, 2% of the land mass. There's still sexism in the Indian Act because the government doesn't want to have to deal with that because the Indian Act is to eliminate the Indian. And, uh, you know, we have women and two-spirit people that face challenges in this country because of the policies of Sir John A. Macdonald. And Métis people are in those categories as well. Um, And he just, I don't know, he wants to remain neutral on this topic. It's just infuriating to me. because that's not leadership. That 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 is the furthest thing from leadership. And like you said, this is a slant. This this is an easy conversation. Um, those names should be removed. The statues tore down, and we should start putting up statues of people that actually propelled society forward. But so for him to remain neutral when his own people suffered, when when his own people still to this day face genocide, is to me it's irresponsible and, and it's disgusting. That's how I feel. <laughs> well, again, it's a total uh, disconnect from the grassroots. It's a total disconnect from, I think, the modern reality. We have, on one hand, a, a settler society that says this is how they remember uh, the past is through these monuments and through these namings. And yet, somehow, when it comes to indigenous name, you know, indigenous names and landmarks and these kinds of things that are readily destroyed by the settler nation. 
we're told just to get over it. So, you know, our burial grounds, our sacred spaces are all easily paved over. But when we talk about bringing down a monument to someone who's basically a, you know, genocidal maniac, (laughs) we somehow have Métis leadership that can't, you know, find, uh, you know, some solid ground to stand on and stand up for what's, you know, what I believe to be a clearly uh, easy choice. Um, you know, and from a leadership standpoint, if you wanted to pick some low-hanging fruit that should appeal to your um, membership, uh, that you were actually doing something positive for Métis people, you know, this should have been an easy go-to to stand up and call for the removal of these these Johnny McDonald things. Well, that's just it. I mean, to me, this just screams uh, like this is this is such a great example of where these organizations that get paid by the government are just puppets for the government. His statement is so similar to what Trudeau's statement was and is so similar in, in attitude and, and intent to make sure we include the non-Indigenous of the country. Because God forbid that we should make them feel a little uncomfortable about genocide. And uh, like, it, it, I don't know how much clearer you can make it that he's, he's a paid shill for the government. That's, you know, I, I don't know how, how much more you, obvious that can be. And, uh, you know, as, as far as people looking to these, these people as leaders or, you know, leaders in the community or anything, I, I don't even know how you do that. And, like, I, I don't know how people aren't publicly shaming uh, guys like this when they make statements like that. Well, it really shows, and, I, and, and this is what I know we continually talk about, being frustrated with this organization due due to the fact that it is government funded and it does represent the largest portion of Métis people. But the fact that this kind of leadership can cannot take a stand on these issues can basically make statements that are, are non-committal on something that should have been an easy commitment statement. Uh, really shows, and then there's not no public shaming. There's no backlash. You know, you can scroll the Facebook and the Twitter and nobody's really said too much about it really shows that Métis people inside this organization are completely apathetic to what their leadership is doing, you know, other than maybe a small minority of disgruntled people, but there's no majority here, you know, and in Alberta, we have the, the MA, which represents just over 30,000 people. And you would think if your leadership was, uh, you know, making these kinds of statements, you should see it somewhere but you simply don't. So for me, not only is this the worst kind of leadership possible in that I don't know who they're representing, but also I don't know who who's left in these organizations that claim to be TB Métis that hold these cards that wouldn't stand up and hold their leadership accountable. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, the messaging that it sends to, you know, First Nations, uh, Inuit people, you know, our, our other Indigenous family uh, is just terrible. Um, th- this in no way, shape, or form builds any bridges. In fact, it burns, even further burns, the bridges that are already on fire. Um, like, it, it's just, I, I don't know how much more of, a, of an absolute slap in the face this could be to, you know, he talks about the most important thing being the Métis, or the resident, the exclusion of Métis from the residential school system settlement. And when you say things like that, to me, what stands out in there is the word settlement. Because that means there's money attached. So is he upset that his organization was left out of being at the table where they could maybe administer a few hundred million dollars in residential school settlement money? Or, like, like what is he... Like, I'm upset that Métis were excluded too, but... You know, like, well, like you said before, these two aren't linked, but to to actually, you know, it, it just, I don't know, it strikes me as weird to actually use the word settlement in there. It just, it, it well, slams it, it, the word money in my face. Well, it's, it's deflection. He's using the fact that Métis were excluded, Métis didn't, aren't are part of a settlement package. Whether he thought he could get his finger in that pie or not, I don't know. Uh, the reality is, is but that's a, dis- a distractor from the real conversation which is that in no way, shape, or form is, you know, propagating some mythological legend of Sir John A. Macdonald uh, proper in the in this context. Yeah, that that's the real conversation. So, 
you, it again, where we're talking about a good politician throwing some smoke and mirrors around to dodge a question that should have been straightforward. Absolutely. And that is, we, we should be standing with every other Indigenous group and every other, all of our canyons saying that we need to put history in its proper light and stop talking about these myths of, you know, John A. McDonald being a father of Confederacy. It's a myth. We need to be aware of that and we need to be able to make the current situation reflect the facts and not some, you know, fairy tale story. And I don't know what kind of a leader would, would want to use uh, the tragedy of Métis people being excluded from a settlement of any kind to, you know, throw shade over this kind of conversation. Absolutely. And, and I think it's really convenient, too, considering, um, so, okay, Métis were excluded from that settlement, from the whole, basically excluded from the TRC altogether. But that's in the past. We, we need to move forward now because the TRC is over. The settlement is pretty much through. We're not going to ever be included in that particular settlement, in that particular TRC. So either you're moving forward and working on a separate one to recognize the Métis uh, pain and trauma and, and suffering that went on, on its own, which would be a great opportunity to talk about something like that if you were going actually embarking on that, but I don't believe that they are. So you're bringing up something that you can't change from the past, and you're kind of wishy-washy. So to me, it's a really another clear example as well of where they're, he's playing obvious politics with the federal government and saying, you know, well, we're not upset with this because we don't want to upset the, our, our contacts in the government, but we'll bring up something that we have absolutely no power to change, and it's in the past, and we can't affect anything there. Because that's nice and safe to say. Because the, the federal government's not going to be upset about you being mad about something that the doors are closed, it's sealed up. So it it it, it was just it was clearly just a little quick political ploy, like you said. It's a little little dodge and weave move. But um, I just I, it was infuriating because you know guys like these are in the press. This is what was printed in the press. So now you know to Canadians. I, I guess maybe he's trying to make friends with the the settler nation or the non-indigenous by saying this. I I don't know. I just um, he's not making any friends with indigenous families. I can tell you that. Well, and and more to the point, um, by him bringing up the topic of Métis exclusion, uh, all they're doing is whining about it. Again, there's no real course of action. As as the president with his presidential seal of the Métis homeland, um, what are they actually going to do about it? You know, instead of just whining that the Métis people were excluded, what what is his organization going to do to stand up and do something about that? Well, nothing. They're going to whine about it. Yeah. You know, and then they're going to use platforms like this and opportunities like this instead of clearly addressing the topic at hand and the grievance at hand yeah. to whine about their exclusion from a settlement. No, absolutely. So, again, again, no justice for Métis people. No movement forward from, uh, you know, for Métis people uh on this issue just you know some shade about dodging a topic and then whining about an exclusion and funding or not funding and then still no proposing no real course of action exactly like are they like you know are they embarking on some sort of um metis trc or, or anything like that are they working with the government on something like that i not that i know of i've never heard of anything like that that they're doing you know, but they have a bus that they can drive around and pick up new members. So that's important. Um, so I, I don't know how much we can go on about that one. I mean, I could go on all day. It, uh, I've been holding in a lot of anger, so this is actually a good uh, good way to release that anger now. <laughs> but, the therapeutic podcast. Yeah, it, absolutely. And, and, you know, everybody listening just gets to, uh, I guess, enjoy it. I, I don't know. Uh, so I wanted to kind of, you know, contrasting his statement uh, with those, with, uh, with Trudeau and stuff. Now, you look at his statement when it comes to, you know, and we talked about how he's he's siding, basically saying the same thing as Trudeau in that in, in this McDonald issue. And then I, th- I thought his statement about the INAC shuffle was interesting as well, because uh, he said... Uh, the Métis, Nas- or, uh, you know, Métis National Council President Clement Chartier 
also praised the federal government on Monday, saying he was alerted of the decision personally in a Monday morning phone call from the Prime Minister. You have two, I believe, well-placed ministers that are serious about what they've been tasked with, he said. I think in this way, progress can, in fact, be made. I think it is a proactive, positive step that the government is taking. And I don't know how... Like, if you can put that in a neon sign and say, with dollar signs around it, and say, I just got paid, I just got paid. But, I mean, I have my own personal beliefs about the whole cabinet shuffle thing, but or INAC shuffle, we'll, and which is the next thing we're going to talk about. But doesn't that just scream to you that, you, like, he, he, how much, uh, like, he, I don't know, he must need a towel for his, like, all the, all the kissing up that he does. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's it's typical when we get to giant government-funded organizations like this, uh, the um, overinflated self of uh, sense of self-importance, where when the you know the prime prime minister of Canada personally calls you, that somehow a status symbol, I guess. Name drop. Um, wow, look how important you really are. Um, <laughs> You know, there, I mean, at what point do we wake up and realize that Canada, as a state, uh, with the honor of the crown, is no friend of Indigenous people? Yeah, yeah. So, getting up in the morning and patting myself on the back that I got a personal phone call ahead of time from the Prime Minister that he was splitting INAC in half, what does that prove? Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. It's, uh, like, it's the biggest name drop in the world, like... You know, I just got a phone. I got a personal phone call, and you, and you know that he's going around telling people that and and bragging about it. And I mean, hey, that's cool if the prime minister calls you. That's that's cool. But it's not like you know. I mean, you know, like him or hate him, it's not like Trudeau is changing the the way the world is turning or anything. So, I mean, it's not that big of a name to begin with, but. Uh, I don't know. It, it just seems like, I mean, how much more in bed with the government can you possibly be? <laughs> well, it really goes to show that that uh, these organizations at this level that claim to represent Métis people are, in fact, just shadows of the colonial government themselves, where this is about hobnobbing, shoulder-rubbing, name-dropping, uh, prestige, you know, showing, you know, that's what this is about. Yeah. This isn't about any actual action that's going to make any real difference for Métis people on the ground. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's nothing more than a political move again that says, hey, vote for me. See, the, the prime minister knows my name and has my number. Yeah. Well, but what does that actually translate into at the end of the day for everyone who's got to go up and go to work and pay their taxes and still doesn't have any Section 35 rights defined or access to them? I mean, the list goes on. Absolutely. What's actually like? So, what's you? He knows your name and calls your number, but what does that help anybody? Ah, exactly, exactly. So now let's talk about that INAC shuffle. I mean, so for anybody who maybe doesn't know, if if you're listening and you don't know, most of our listeners, I think, probably would. But um, so they the the federal government shook up INAC. I think they actually totally dissolved INAC and created two separate but conjoined ministries, I guess. Um, so Jane Philpott, who was the former Minister of Health, has now moved into into a role as Minister of Indigenous Services, and she'll be responsible for things such as clean water and health services as other and other things. And Carolyn Bennett will remain as Minister responsible for treaty rights and land negotiations. And the whole thing's been renamed now to the Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs. So it's Cerna, I guess is the short version. Um, so I don't know, Jason. From your point of view, um, does this make you feel, you know, differently about INAC or the Cerna or whatever they're calling it now, or does it does it, does it make you feel more optimistic or about the same? Again, it's everything's kind of like a mixed bag, right? And so for me, the one thing I do I do see some benefit with it. And by splitting the administration of INAC into two different things, I'm positive in that it allows for, I think, a more engaged conversation with these departments because their portfolios are narrowed. Mm -hmm. And so their scope is not as broad. 
Yeah. Uh, as a Métis person, I'm quite concerned because if you look at the definitions outlined so far, there's a huge gap in which Métis people fall. We don't have treaty. We're not necessarily treaty people. So what rights, what lands, what things are we being negotiated if we're not falling under that header? Yes. And at, at the same time, if you flip over to the new one, when we're talking programs and services, well, none of those programs and services, even with the Daniels case, are defined for Métis people. And therefore, they don't really have a mandate to roll anything out for Métis people. So I'm not sure where that leaves us. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, um, I think a lot of these things, uh, like you said, we don't have, we're not on any treaties, so we don't have the treaty rights, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of things are just kind of left up in the air. Um, I think that to me, this is screaming the main focus is First Nation and Inuit. And again, Métis. It's it's kind of that that thought process, um, which I, I don't know. I, I I mean I obviously don't agree with, but um, it's just very unclear as to where we're all going to fit in this now. I I agree with you though. I do think, you know, just purely from an organizational standpoint, I think the INAC was m so massive. I thought it, I always thought it was ridiculous that one person is supposed to be in control of all of that. Um, so it. To me, it's 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 a good thing in one way, and it's it's like you said, it's a narrowing of portfolios, it's a focusing of somebody, and reducing. And you know, I mean, it's a work, it's a workload thing, right? I mean, that's a huge portfolio. Um, so from that perspective, I do think it's a good thing. Um, however, the government seems to be able to find a way to screw up just about everything that might be possibly good. So you have this potentially really good thing, and but it's government run. <laughs> so so there's I kind of approach it with a little cynicism. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, though, I guess really, we've had INAC for quite a few num quite a number of years now, and nothing has really changed. So we can't keep doing the same thing expecting different results. Um, so. I guess that's where I'm at with it is, is right now. Um, well, that's my hope, though, is that that by splitting it, we'll be able to engage better. The, I mean, the concern I have, even even for our First Nations relations, is even though they're mandated with treaty and you have these outlines, and when you talk about programs and services, um, it's nice to be able to see that they're going to be have somewhere more direct good to go. But we have yet to see, um, on, even on services. We haven't seen any budgetary um, rollout as where the monies for these two new portfolios are coming from. Is this going to be monies that are eaten up through administration now that used to be INAC money uh, is now split between two portfolios? Exactly. You know, that, that's some of my concerns. So, you know, we can't get clean drinking water in how many communities? And if we don't see an increase in budgetary spending for programs and services, then what was really the point? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't know, I, you know, I was thinking about a lot of things and I have a lot of questions like, uh, well, I, like for example, would it have been better to have a male-female ministers doing it? Uh, would it have been better to place perhaps a mate, uh, you know, one of the indigenous MPs into one of the roles at least? Uh, would Would that have made any difference, do you think? Well, the challenge we have to understand is the crown is the crown, and, and they're only out for their own good. I would pity any Indigenous person, A, who's ever engaged in politics, but then would get saddled with one of these portfolios because your hands are tied. You know, um, you'd really be the, you know, painting of arrow on your back, you know, target on your back, because the reality is, is you can only do what you have a budget and a mandate for. Yeah. You know, whether you've got a guy in there, a girl in there, an Indigenous person in there. I, I really don't see yet there's not been enough clarity to find out what are these, you know, portfolios actually going to be able to get done. Yeah. So while it's my hope that we can cut through a lot of administration, administrative red tape uh, by splitting it, and we may be able to more directly engage people on specific portfolios now, I'm not convinced that bureaucracy is going to change the heel dragging, the lack of action, the lack of funding. I don't see that going away. 
Well, that's just it. And I do see this becoming uh, like a bureaucratic nightmare because inevitably some of their responsibilities are going to overlap. So then, oh, well, now who's in charge? Oh, well, now we're going to play the dodgeball game of, no, they're in charge. Oh, no, they're in charge. Oh, they're in charge. Um, So I can see a lot of that happening because, like I said, the government can find a way to screw up just about anything. Um, So I do see a lot more bureaucracy, a lot more red tape to go through your... Uh, I'm sure that they're adding more staff. There's going to be new offices. There's going to be, you know, see, we're talking about a few million dollars spent on those kinds of things. Um, you know, and, and where where does this leave, you know, Indigenous people? Well, we're, our schools are still, Indigenous schools are still underfunded. Indigenous language programs are still underfunded. There's still sexism in the Indian Act. There's still, um, you know, there's still these no, things going and- on. And that's exactly right. So now when you're talking treaty rights, are you talking education, which was part of the original signing of the treaties, or does that now get kicked over to programs and services? Exactly. Right? So this is all yet to be clarified. They've got, you know, again, this is a great political shakeup. It's a great, you know, I have hopes that maybe it will work, but I'm not very convinced. Absolutely. Um, you know, and one of the things that uh, I thought that was interesting was that Trudeau actually used the uh, the term, you know, colonial structures. And um, when he said, you know, this is the next step in getting doing away with the Indian Act. And uh, yeah, I mean, they, they they're having a hard time getting rid of the sexism in the Indian Act. The Indian Act is actually enshrined in the Constitution. So it's great that he says this is the next step in doing away with the Indian Act. But is he going to reopen the Constitution? Because um, that's the only way to do away with the Indian Act. Now you can gut it, you can change it a little, but they've already shown a clear and expressed intent that they're not interested in actually changing the Indian Act for fear of the re- the financial repercussions of it. So you know, what does this mean? This means we basically added a minister's office, a minister's pay, a minister's sal- you know, expenses, a minister's travel budget, a minister's staff, a minister's office. Um, you know, and I see these guys and all, you know, half the time is spent just traveling around taking pictures and going to events. So now we have two people to go to events and shake hands and take pictures. Yeah, but now they can be in two places at once. <laughs> exactly. See, we get more media coverage out of this. But it's more engagement, right? You get more engagement from the government. But I think that's the real challenge is to understand that it doesn't matter what, uh, how they split INAC. It doesn't matter even if they completely gutted it. Um, this is all going to, at the end of the day, boil down to the dollars and cents of it. And when we're talking about re-enrollment of people because of sexism in the Indian Act, when we're talking about lands, title, programs, services, the only thing the government sees at the end of the day is the dollar attached to it and how they have to sell that to the voter. Absolutely. That, Absolutely. that is the And that is why we have to, as Indigenous people, get our head around the fact that the government is no friend of Indigenous people because all they see when they talk to us are dollar signs. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, I, like I said, I think there, there, there's the potential that this could be good, but I have my the very realistic and cynical side of me says they'll find a way to really screw this up hard. <laughs> so. Well, at the very least, what we're looking at is a prolonged rollout of, you know, Lord only knows what, of bureaucracy to define these portfolios, put a budget behind them, uh, and then we'll we'll kind of know where this ship is going. But until then, this is, you know, I, I really don't got too many expectations. No, and, and that's the thing is I, I think at this point, I think the government needs to prove through actions rather than just talking about things. So um, I don't believe that this is going to do anything to benefit anybody until I see it actually benefit people and doing something um, because because of the history I, I have to be I have to say they've they've said these things in the past they've made beautiful statements and they've never done it um, and they've they've failed to follow through so they do this and they can say that they're opening up that uh, Royal Commission on Indigenous uh, what was it the Royal Commission on Indigenous Relations or something like that um, 
and this is one of the things in that royal commission and that's great but like i i need to see proof so i guess i'm gonna have to wait 12 months to see what actions have been taken and what things have actually been followed through with because you know, like we've seen in the government, they'll say, oh, well, we've, we've budgeted an extra, um, you know, $4 billion for this. Okay, but does the money actually get to where it's supposed to go? And do we see the actual end result of a physical thing or water treatment plant being built? Houses being built? Or is it just, no, we budgeted more, but we didn't really spend the money. And they've done that in the past, so... I think to me, it's this is great. It's great talk. I'm going to wait and see if there's any actual change done. Yeah, if I was going to break out my crystal ball, I think the reality is you won't see these portfolios really get any teeth behind them till just before the election. They'll get big budgets, big promises, big mandates, and then they'll all be, you know, um, you know based on whether they get reelected or not. Exactly. Or they'll they'll set so, the stage really well for as soon as just after the election, they're going to really tackle these two big things or something, you know? No, it'll be the big run up. This is this will, yeah. where this is going to go is this is how they're going to try to get the indigenous vote again. Yeah, they're going to split these portfolios. You'll see over the next 12 months, they'll roll out budgets for them, mandates for them. You know, we're talking about programs and services, and it'll all be the big run up to get the indigenous vote in the next election. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, which, of course, after they're elected, they'll say, well, holy crap, we can't pay for that. Yeah, well, or they'll just bog down in red tape and nothing will actually ever get accomplished anyway. So Yeah. So moving, uh, so going from that kind of, uh, you know, government, bureaucracy, red tape, uh, expansion crap, I was fortunate enough to read a letter from a, a friend of mine who was part of the MNO, started another organization, and was promptly suspended from the MNO, uh, had their membership suspended because they started another politi Métis political organization. And in the letter, it actually says, because you started or you're part of another political organization, Métis political organization, your membership in the MNO is now suspended. And I, I believe that's the, the kind of the, the whole thing for the whole cartel is that that's what they do. And there's and then the other part of that letter says that if the person had a harvester's card, it was going to be promptly cancelled uh, within a certain time frame of the suspension becoming in effect. So there's two messages here that I think are very interesting in a letter like that. Um, one is, how the hell do you take away somebody's harvester's card? They either have constitutional rights or they don't. And last time I checked, the MNO was not capable or legal to take away somebody's constitutional rights. I don't know, what do you think, Jason? Um, well, I'm, I'm not totally up to speed on how the MNO operates. It is my understanding that because the MNO is, is the paid representative organization for the Métis in Ontario, the government in Ontario allocates to that organization X number of harvesting cards. Now, because the government has put the onus on the MNO to deal with those cards, um, the MNO is now using, from what we can see, that, again, is not a right. It's a privilege of being a member in the MNO. That's and true. And the, the MNC has unilaterally decided in its bylaws that it is a one-horse party. It doesn't deal with dissension in the ranks. You're not allowed to uh, to enjoy the freedoms and liberties that even people in the colonial state can, which is hold uh, memberships in multiple parties. So, you know, very dictatorial. Um, I'm not exactly sure what they're trying to, um, you know, how many friends are trying to win by saying that they're going to revoke your harvester's rights. It really goes to show that in Ontario, then it's not a right. It's a privilege of being part of the MNO. Absolutely, which I'm sure they're more than happy with the, that statement. Um, but I, you know, I think you're right. I think you know the. I mean, I think that's terrible that they would. First of all, in any to call yourself a, you know, these guys want to call themselves a nation, a democratically elected nation, but you don't allow any opposition viewpoints. Well, that's not a democratically elected. Then that's dictatorial. That's, uh, I mean, that's, you know, fascism is the key, the cool catchphrase word of the day. 
and that kind of defines it. I mean, when you when you kick out anybody who had have a dissenting voice. And so let's let's look at what they've done recently. So they say that you're a citizen. They say all these things, but then they kick you out for having a political viewpoint that's not yours or not the same. So are they telling you they've nullified your citizenship into their nation? So imagine if the Canadian government, so we have the Liberals in power now, so imagine if they just, all of the Conservatives and the NDPs and even the Green Party, because, you know, it's the Green Party, we'll just kick them all out and tell and revoke their citizenship now because they have an opposing viewpoint. Like, that's insane. That's not democracy. And again, you know, going back to that first topic, I don't know how much clearer we can make it that these people aren't leaders. They're not, they're certainly not democratically elected. They're not a government. And they're paid by the Canadian government. Um, and I just, and then you, you come to something like this, and I think, I don't know how much clearer you can make it. This is not a democracy. This is a nonprofit society board membership. That's what you have. And it's, it doesn't, and it can't make a government. Well, I think for me, what what really is striking this week, um, you know, with a couple of things coming to light, is that at some point, Métis people have to stand up and own their complacency in this, and that those organizations get paid to represent Métis people. And therefore, if you have one of these cards in this these cartels, you are willingly supporting an organization that is a fascist dictatorship. That doesn't allow for any dissenting voice. It doesn't allow for you to live in a democratic society that would be governed by the Métis people. If that were even such a thing within their organization, I simply don't understand how any uh, socially conscious Métis person could hang on to one of those cards. I don't either. I mean, just in what we've covered tonight, I mean, I can't understand how there's not more... eh anger and, and, and outrage about the things that they do and they say and they spend money on. Um, you have a guy who doesn't care about the, you know, Sir Johnny McDonald having statues and names on buildings. Names on buildings that Indigenous children have to walk into or landmarks that they have to go through. Um, and they have to honor the people who killed off their ancestors and are trying actively to kill them off today. And there's, it, it, we're going to remain neutral on that. And it just, it, it boggles my mind how people can support this with no outrage. And to me, it screams of the disconnect that's happened. Um, that's happened over 30 years of having absolutely no voice and no real way to elect these people. Um, you know, the MNC's elected on, what, 14 votes or 28 votes or something like that? So it's not realistic. Well, I think that's the challenge, is, you know, um, as to how do we then re-engage Métis people in what goes on in a way that that's meaningful and in a way that matters. Because we have a whole generation of Métis people that are quickly rising up looking at the political scene, looking at this conversation we have about rights, about land, about harvesting. And really, if you were looking at this and, you know, my son just turned 18 and, uh, you know, he's no idiot. It doesn't take, you know, many conversations to realize that being Métis is, is quickly be, being boiled down to a discussion of what does it get you? Yeah, you know what? What being Métis and and having that card is really just a conversation about what programs and services am I entitled to? Yeah, and I think that's that's the scariest thing for me personally, is that this organization has run amok and reduced Métis identity not to a culture, not to a language. It has reduced it to what are our rights, how do we get them, and how much money is attached to that? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, on a daily basis, I don't see how they're fighting for Métis people. I mean, it, this it wasn't on our list today, but it kind of is in my mind. Um, you know, the MNO recently came out and said that they're, they've recognized five new communities that are technically, I think all of them are outside of the, the homeland. 
which I have such a problem with that name. But it's outside the Métis National Council's homeland definition. And so now you have a fight between the MNC and the MNO because the MNC has said, well, we need to deal with this expeditiously, which to me says they aren't really happy with the MNO coming out and and saying that Um, because these communities, because they they want to stick with their national definition. Um, And, you know, everything that they do, everything that they say, it's nationalistic. It's you can't have an opposing viewpoint. You have to be you know, a patriot to the Métis nation, or you're just, you're, you're not a real Métis, or, you know, it's very, very, um, uh, I don't know, it, it just screams of, of similarities to other fascism that hap- has happened over the, throughout the world. It's just on well, a smaller I scale. Think, yeah, I think, you know, uh, to bring that up, I think it, it really shows the, um, the absolute fraud, to be quite honest, that the MNC is. And it's member, you know, provincial membership, because the reality is what we had is we have an organization that says that no group of Métis outside of the homeland could pass the Pali test because they're the historical Métis people. And what do we have is we have these communities in Ontario that pass that test and get that status. So for the MNO in Ontario to maintain its supremacy at the top, it has to get those, you know, rights bearing communities to be part of its organization and not form a conglomerate somewhere else because that would mean that there are rights-bearing Métis people not part of that power structure. And so this whole dichotomy really shows what a fragile, myopic institution that these guys have become. Absolutely. You use nicer words than me. (laughs) But absolutely, it, it really, I, I do it, agree. It's really frustrating to me that the, the Métis people in themselves can't wake up to the fact that there are rights-bearing Métis people outside of whatever that thing they call a homeland is, and that this is going to be an ever this is going to be a slow and steady march down this road as community after community in the east uh, gain their rights and recognitions that are long overdue in in uh, you know in the public mind. And so this is a, a, a wake-up call, again, to the MNC, that this fairy tale revisionism of what it means to be Métis and who the Métis are is under fire. Yes. So, it, you know, for me to sum up the evening is like, what kind of crackpot leadership is this and how totally disconnected is the membership in this organization? Absolutely. Yep. I uh, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a great way to, you know, to kind of end it there. Um, on a completely separate note, we uh, we did receive an email from somebody asking about uh, books about Métis history and uh, things like that. So I personally, I the, the book I'm, I've read recently that I really liked was Songs Upon the River by Robert Fox Curran, Michael Bouchard, and Sebastian Millette. Um that's definitely on my top of my list. Uh, Jason, I don't know if there's a couple of books you had in mind that would recommend to this fellow. Oh, my goodness. Where do you even start? There's so many. He caught me flat-footed on that one. I'd have to go look at my bookshelf. Well, so, yeah, I mean, you can always go with Half-Breed by Maria Campbell. That's uh, that's, that's one of my favorites. There's um, oh, there's another one coming out right away, too, The Songs of Batash. Oh, yes, yes. I've I seen that coming out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. That one looks good. So yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of good books out there. Um, I I guess those are our picks, off the top of yeah, my head. Yeah, and that's yeah. By all means, if uh, yeah, if I saw that on the Facebook, I would have thrown up a few more. I would run over to my bookshelf, which I still might too. Maybe I'll post that on the the Facebook page. Yeah, that would be good. But, you know, yeah. So Jason's gonna post that on the Facebook page for the person who emailed that question in a couple weeks ago. Because I yeah I got a couple that I really like that are uh, the deal with Métis history Métis identity that I, I think were very uh, balanced so yeah great I well, just the name escapes me at the moment <laughs> of course well I look forward to seeing your post um, oh yeah and then I guess the last very last thing uh, one of, well second last thing is I wanted to let everybody know that we will be in Estevan Saskatchewan in a, actually in a few days on Saturday night for the old time dance. 
um, if you're in the Estevan, Saskatchewan area, because there's just so many people that are, um, <laughs> come on out. I think it's at the Legion there. It's on Facebook. Just do a Facebook search for Old Time Dance, and it comes up. Uh, we'll be... I think we're going to try to do some podcast recording. We'll have merchandise for sale. We'll be talking to people and uh, and having a good time, having a meal and some dancing. And Jason's going to teach everybody how to jig. Yeah, yeah. You'll you'll see if I'm doing it, it'll be a jig you never saw before. <laughs> I've committed him now. He's he's doing it. Yeah, yeah. By all means, we'd love to see everybody out there. I think that'd be great. Um, you know, make the big trek to uh, Saskatchewan. Yeah, you know, it's a long drive, but I'm actually really looking forward to this. I, I think it's going to be good just to actually celebrate a little bit, you know? Yeah, it'd be nice to yeah. get out and uh, to meet and greet, and it's always fun to meet uh, more of our kin across the land, so I look forward to that. Another shout-out, uh, Darcy got a new website up this week for both the uh, Society and our youth camp, so that'll be posted on our Facebook page, and I hope everybody gets a chance to log in and check it out and give us some feedback. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, check them out. Uh, they're uh, they're a work in progress, so we're hoping to use those to uh, drive our camp forward and our organization forward. So, awesome things. And I wanted to give a shout out to Dreesus and the Mag Seven crew for uh, being honored at the MTV Video Awards, and where they won a Moon Man for best fight against <laughs> the, best fight against the system uh, song for uh, their Standing Rock song. So, we're proud to have his music on the show. And I hope he keeps breaking down walls because, as far as I know, I think he's the first uh, first Canadian Indigenous to win a Moon Man. Or and uh, so that's that's awesome. And he's from Calgary, so that's fantastic. Yeah, and he's uh, you know, and to have him support our show and then uh, use his music, I think you know that uh, means a lot to me personally. Absolutely, yeah. He's uh, he's an awesome guy. I've listened to a few interviews he's done. He's uh, he's had a tough life and he's changed his life around a lot and. Uh, I got a lot of respect for the guy, so you know, check out his music. Um, but props to him and the, and the whole Mag Seven crew for for that song, and which I love. My daughter has memorized and uh, is very proud that she knows every single word. So nice. <laughs> yeah. Any final thoughts, Jason? No, I think I have ranted this evening quite enough. Yeah, I feel good. I've I've released a lot of anger and frustration, so that's good. I can. It's like Zen. I have a Zen feeling now. <laughs> sleep like a baby tonight that's right that's it until next time the jig is up long live the pig hey my late cooking came from kawaka to express real warrior woman probably popping loose dead it's poor man's if you want to talk the language a hundred clicks north of rg is the rest you still gotta be a chief to wear a headdress so take your shit off before you ruin it for the rest you better listen to your heart there's too many heads Watch what you say, man, it's way too many feds.